Hi, and welcome back to the Skylight Books podcast. My name is Tyler Austin. I'm a bookseller at Skylight Books. Uh, and today I'm joined by Charles Ardai, who is both an author and publisher, so serving as the editor at Hard Case Crime, an imprint he founded in 2004. Since then, the company's published over 150 titles, and Ardai has personally published numerous books, including the John Blake novels, Little Lost Girl and Songs of Innocence, which won a Seamus Award for Best Original PI Paperback. Thank you so much for joining us today, Charles. I am delighted to be here. It's 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 fun to do this sort of thing. And I don't get out as much as I used to. Back in my younger days, I'd go around the country. I'd get out of New York City and go to stores all over. And that since COVID, that hasn't happened so much. So this is this is the next best thing. It's not as good as being in a, the same room as you, but it's uh, but it's good. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. And and uh, I, first, I just have to comment. I feel like you, you have a real uh, you have like a great noir voice. Oh, well, thank you. It's it's funny. I don't um, I don't think about it until somebody says that. And then, of course, I start putting on my radio voice. But uh, I, I, um, I was asked at one point. So James Kestrel, who is a pseudonym, but he uh, he wrote a book for us called Five Decembers, which, by the way, if your viewers, listeners have not yet read that book, that's one of the very best we've ever published. So James Kestrel, Five Decembers, it won the Edgar Award. And before it won the Edgar Award, when it was just another book by a guy no one had ever heard of because it was a brand new pseudonym, he said, I love your voice. Would you record my audiobook for me? And I was so flattered and so touched, but I I, I wouldn't know where to begin reading a hundred thousand word book. I'd, I'd run out of uh, whatever's good about my voice would go well, well before that. So he ended up doing a deal with, I think, recorded books, one of the big companies, and they brought in a professional narrator. And I think he did a slightly better job, but I was still... <laughs> Uh, well, that's lovely. Well, and it's so funny. I know five Decembers very well, and uh, I'll just quickly I I'll say this uh, is it's it's on our bookshelf at Skylight Books. That's great. And uh, along with in the mystery section, mystery and crime section, which if you were to ask anyone else who works at Skylight Books, uh, who would give you a crime or mystery recommendation, it would be me. And so, <laughs> so I'm <laughs> I'm in guy. that section a lot. I'm the guy. I'm the, literally someone comes in going like, "Oh, my dad wants to read like a crime novel." I'm like Tyler. Come That's over it. here, yeah. and uh, and then I get to point them to this section, and then and we find something together. But I, so all my time spent in that section, uh, I, you know, I was somewhat familiar with with your published, you know, with your your works. But then time and time again, I just find myself coming back to the titles, uh, coming back to the covers of Hard Case Crime, and they just five December's uh, shills can't cash chips. I mean, these are just like cut diamond titles. That uh, and, and then you then you pull them off the shelf and you look at the cover and you're like, this is such a great cover. Uh, so I just have to. So so I mean, I, that's my long winded way of saying I, I love your books and I think they're oh, so great. Uh, so so what what how did the whole enterprise begin? Well, you know, my my partner and I, Max Phillips, he's, he's he's an old friend. We've worked together on a bunch of different things back in 2001. So more than 20 years ago. Uh, we were out to dinner, having drinks and talking about things we loved and what might, what might we want to do next, because we had just finished work on a, an, an Internet company called Juno, sold the company. And then the question was, what do you do next? And we talked about the books we loved. And we both grew up reading these old paperback crime novels. We were both too young to actually buy them in newsstand spinner racks uh, or pharmacy spinner racks. Uh, but these were the kind of books that had painted covers, usually with some beautiful woman in not much clothing and a man in a fedora <laughs> with a gun, some situation of menace. And then the books themselves were slender. They were usually 150 or 200 pages, not more than that. 
And they were written with this enormous velocity and, and, and charge of energy, uh, crackling dialogue, clever plots. And we love those books. And today, or I should say 20 years ago, because that's when it was, books were coming out that were two or three times that length, uh, sometimes very good, but sometimes sort of slow and turgid. And the covers were boring. They had uh, type on the covers. That's it. You know, the author's name, the title, and maybe a little tiny illustration of a pen or a gun or something. <laughs> Why doesn't anyone publish books anymore of the sort that we grew up falling in love with? And then two or three drinks after that, we said, well, why don't we do it? Why don't we just publish our own line? You can write one. I'll write one. And that's the sort of idea that ought to have died the next morning. You know, you wake up sober. With a <laughs> and I and it really would have if it hadn't been for Max. So two weeks later, Max said to me, you remember that idea you had? Uh, and I said, no, what idea I had? I don't remember. Uh, he said, well, I've dummied up some covers, this idea of publishing our own line of books. I've dummied up some covers to show you what they might look like. And then he handed me covers that look like hard case crime books. And I said, oh, my God, this is gorgeous. He's a great graphic designer. And he, he's also a novelist, incredibly talented guy. And when he showed me those covers, I couldn't just drop the thing. It looked too beautiful. So I said, OK, since you've gone to the trouble of making the covers, I'm going to go pitch this to various publishers and see if somebody's willing to back us and because you know, we didn't have the money to start a publishing company. Um, so I went around. It took three years. I, I talked to every publishing company in New York, which is a lot of publishing companies, not every, <laughs> but all the big ones. And uniformly, their reaction when they saw the covers, they said, oh, this is gorgeous. But they usually said, this is gorgeous. But the audience of people who might buy this sort of thing is very small. They're passionate. They're dedicated collectors. But there may only be 10,000 of them in the country. And so it's not enough. Even if all of them bought every book you published, it wouldn't be enough books sold to really make it interesting to Random House, Simon & Schuster, those big guys. And of course, they won't all buy every book, right? So instead of 10,000, you'll sell 5,000 or 3,000. And so I was kind of close to giving up, but then I started talking to some of the smaller houses. And there was one called Dorchester. They don't exist anymore. Uh, but Dorchester was, at the time, the oldest independent Mass market paperback company. Mass market is the term in the field for books that are about the size of your pocket. They're about uh, four by six inches and or four by seven, really four by six and three quarters, something like that. And they fit in a jean pocket or a coat pocket or a purse. And uh, they were the oldest publisher left that did that and nothing else. That's all they did. Hmm. So all the other paperback houses had been subsumed inside big conglomerates. So, you know, Berkeley became part of NAL or whatever it was. And um and I, I went to them and I looked at what books they had. And they had Westerns, they had romance, they had horror. They even had a couple, not many, but a couple of sort of Tom Clancy-ish techno thrillers. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, you know, how can you not have crime fiction? Why don't, why don't you let us be your crime fiction line? And their, their first line was, well, why would we, we have editors, we have artists, we have, if we want a crime fiction line, we'd just do it ourselves. And I said, yeah, but you haven't. So why don't you give us a chance? We'll do a few. And we'd sign a contract to do six books. And if you don't like it, then don't do any more. And between us, Max and I said, well, we'll get six books out of it. We'll stick them on a shelf. We'll be proud of it. That'll be the end of that. And then the six came out and people started writing about the books. You know, they, they got covered in newspapers and magazines and on the web. And everyone said, look at these cool books. And then Stephen King decided, so we did six, then we got a contract for a second six. And that is where it would have stopped. Except that Stephen King decided he wanted to be book number 13. And he wrote a book hmm. for us called The Colorado Kid. And that became a bestseller. And suddenly that really put us on the map. And uh, 
we're still here. So 20 years later, we published our first books in 2004. So 2024 will be our 20th anniversary. And we're still here. Stephen King has written three books for us. And if it hadn't been for him, we would not we absolutely would not still exist. So my my hats off and all my gratitude to Stephen King for being a generous soul and helping a small outfit like ours get off the ground and stay off the ground. That's so that's so interesting. I was going to specifically ask about how that sort of relationship came to be, because you have all these great, you know, classic tight, you know, you know, giants of the genre. You have your Donald Westlake's and Max Allen Collins. But then Stephen King, you know, you, later is, I love later. I think that's oh, such a great book. And I've actually not gone back and read Colorado Kid. Now I think I will. Uh, but so he just, he just found your kind of novels and had reached out. I mean, that's amazing. It's not exactly like that. So I can, uh, it's, it's just as good a story, but not precisely that. So I reached mm -hmm. out to him, but I didn't know him. I never mm -hmm. met the man. I didn't know him. I didn't know how to reach him. I just went online and searched Stephen King literary agent, Stephen King, <laughs> you know, any connection I could think of. And eventually I found the name, I don't know why, but I found the name of his accountant. And his accountant happened to be someone in New York, in Manhattan, where I live. Uh, and I went to his office with a care package, a little package I put together that showed Max's dummied up covers and a list of some of the books that we were gonna be publishing. And I had a letter in it and I asked the accountant, could you please be kind enough to send this to Stephen King? Because I really think he's gonna like this. And what I was asking him to do was if he could write a blurb. Basically, just a few words. Mm -hmm. uh, the theory was, I knew he loved old pulp novels the same way we did, because he's written about that in essays, forwards, afterwards. He wrote a novel called The Dark Half, which was all about a writer who writes uh, pulp crime novels under a pseudonym, sort of the way he himself wrote, uh, not crime novels really, but horror novels under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. In the book, The Dark Half, his main character has a pseudonym, which is George Stark, and the pseudonym comes to life and starts killing people. But George Stark Truth. was an homage to Richard Stark, and Richard Stark was the dark pseudonym of Donald Westlake, the author you mentioned earlier. And so I knew he loved Richard Stark. I knew he liked Westlake. And so I thought, this is a guy who loves the same stuff we do. If he sees these covers and he sees what we're doing, he'll probably be interested. And, he, and the theory was, Yes, we publish some people who are still well-known, like Earl Stanley Gardner, who created Perry Mason, still fairly well-known. James M. Cain, who wrote The Postman, Always Rings Twice. But we were also publishing or planning to publish books by people like Day Keen and Gil Brewer, David Dodge, who might have been known in the 50s, the 60s, but basically have been forgotten at this point. David Dodge wrote To Catch a Thief, which was a big Hitchcock movie. But today, if you say David Dodge to a stranger on the street, they don't know who, it, who he is. But my theory was, if we publish... Uh, Plunder of the Sun by David Dodge. And on the cover, we could write, these guys know pulp or by Stephen King, or you know, check out these guys' books. They're good, Stephen King. It would help encourage people who don't know the author to pick up the book because they know and trust and respect the person who wrote the blurb. Anyway, that's, what, that's the long-winded way of explaining why I reached out to Stephen King, but I didn't expect to hear back. And I didn't hear back for about two, three months. I don't know how long, a period like that. And then I got a phone call from a man who said, I'm Stephen King's agent. Uh, his name was Chuck Verrill. And very sadly, he died a year ago or so. Uh, as long as I knew him, he was an incredibly decent and nice guy. And uh, he had a, a bad liver condition for years and years, but it was in remission or it was, it was, he, he was living with it. Uh, but eventually it got the better of him. And sadly, he's, he's no longer with us. But he called up and said, Steve asked me to get in touch with you to let you know he does not want to write you a blurb. And I thought that was the end of the sentence. So I said, 
I understand. That's fine. Thank you so much for reaching out. And Chuck rode over me and said, because he wants to write you a book instead. At which point I shut up and uh, (laughs) silent. I couldn't think of anything to say. Uh, He said, you know, Steve's written this book. It's called The Colorado Kid. It's not exactly in your genre. It's not precisely hard-boiled noir crime fiction. Uh, He said it's more bleu than noir. But uh, (laughs) would you like to take a look at it? And of course, I didn't have to think very long before saying, yes, I would like to take a look at it. I would love to take a look at it. And and it came. And uh, it's true. It's not it's not a detective story in the traditional hard boiled sense about a private eye with a bottle of whiskey in his drawer and a blonde who walks in the uh, the front door. Uh, But it's a terrific book. It's short. It's uh, more a novella than a novel. And uh, but it's about you know, it's comparable length to The Postman Always Rings Twice or some of James Cain's classics. And it's a terrific read. Uh, Steve was concerned, uh, I don't know, concerned, but he he was conscious of the fact that some mystery readers might be offended by it because, and it, at this point, it's been out long enough that I don't worry about getting into spoiler territory here. Um, it It's all about unanswered questions. And mm-hmm. it poses the uh, question of how a man turned up dead on a beach in Maine when that morning he was alive in Colorado. Was it even possible for him to get there in time to die on the beach and what killed him? Uh, And in the end, we find a lot of things out about this man. We never find out why he died. We never find out who killed him. If anyone killed him, maybe it was an accident. And so you get to the end of this mystery novel, that's all about mysteries in life and how sometimes they're not solved and it doesn't get solved. And, and he was aware that some people would think that was sacrilege. That's the, you can't do that. There's a covenant between the author and the reader of a mystery novel. You have to give a solution. And he chose not to, a deliberate choice not to. And the result was a terrific book about how some answered questions in life are just unanswered forever. Um, but yeah, some, some people got mad about that. But you know, the funny thing is when it was a new book and people didn't know going in that that's how it ended, some people got mad. But now that it's well known that that's how it ends, people don't, don't get mad about it because they know it going in and they appreciate it for what it is, which is a wonderful book about unanswered mysteries, unsolved mysteries. So in any event, Colorado Kid, eight years later, he wrote one for us called Joyland. Again, I didn't ask him to do this. Chuck called again and said, Steve has another book. Would you like to see it? And Joyland is one of the very best books we've ever published. Five Decembers in Joyland would be on any short list of fans of hard case crime. And that one is set in a uh, seaside amusement park, sort of a second rate amusement mm-hmm. park, not Disneyland, few few tiers down, uh, an amusement park in North Carolina where uh, sadly some young woman got killed and it's reported, reputed that her ghost might actually be haunting the haunted house attraction. Uh, it's a terrific book. So Joyland, I, they're they're all wonderful. If you've read later, at some point you should read Joyland. And then later was the third, eight years later, so to speak. And uh, mm-hmm. that one's about a young boy who has the uh, ability to speak to the dead. And when he speaks to them, they must tell the truth. They're obliged to tell the truth. They can't otherwise. Although he meets one dead person who really, really doesn't want to tell the truth. And uh, they're all terrific reads. They're just so wonderful and very Unusual for hard case crime, our books generally don't contain a supernatural element. But of course, for Stephen King, the doors are all open for Stephen King. <laughs> I, I imagine that, that it's it's you you'd be a little uh, it, 
you know, it'd be leaving something on the table. And he also, it's, it's what readers want from him and it's what he does so beautifully. He also does non-supernatural books very well. Misery has nothing supernatural in it. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, one of his finest stories has nothing supernatural in it. Uh, and really the Colorado kid, unless you dig around the edges, doesn't have anything supernatural in it. Uh, unless there's a supernatural explanation we don't know for why the dead body ended up on the beach. But um, of course, he's he's a master of the supernatural. And so I think any any reader who enters a Stephen King book knows that might be coming. Definitely. And it, and it works so well in later where it sort of blends beautifully into the genre. It, it's very, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it's a lovely book and I can't recommend it. It's a book I've gotten multiple people and they all go, I've already read that one. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shoot. Right. Great. I'm glad you've read one. it. But yeah, exa exactly. It's always happened. So, uh, so, well, so coming back, so you've also written sure. and been published uh, in the heart. So what, what initially inspired you and, and got you into these books uh, as, a, as a young person? It's an interesting question, how to reconstruct where it came from. You know, as, as a kid, of course, I read Sherlock Holmes and the Hardy Boys like every other kid on earth and loved them, Encyclopedia Brown. But how do you get from that to hard-boiled crime fiction? How do you get from that to noir? At some point, I started reading uh, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Uh, which was also, incidentally, one of the ways Stephen King got his start. He also read Ellery Queen. So Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine is still being published today. It was originated, it first published in 1941. So it's been around for well over uh, 70 years. I forget exactly how, how to do math at the moment. But it's been around for, uh, for a very long time. And the um, stories ran the gamut from cozy to procedural to sort of horror to hard-boiled and detective stories. And that's where I was first exposed to writers like Cornell Woolrich, who wrote Rear Window and some very dark noir. Uh, not so much Kane because Kane uh, didn't write many short stories. He had one collection of short stories and I don't think any of them ended up in, in Ellery Queen. Uh, but other writers like Lawrence Block, for instance, wrote a lot for, uh, for, for Ellery Queen. Stanley Ellen, uh, who he would write exactly one short story a year. And he would work on that short story the whole year. And he would polish each sentence and they were always perfect. They were gorgeous stories. Uh, so Stanley Ellen was another one. There's a guy named Jack Ritchie, who's very little remembered now, Henry Slizar. Uh, a lot of these were people whose short stories eventually got adapted to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show. Mm -hmm. So they often had twist endings. They were mordant and macabre in some cases. And I fell in love with that, this sort of cynical, dark, uh, Roald Dahl flavored uh, crime fiction. Alfred Hitchcock's suspense type fiction. And I enjoyed those so much that I went to the library looking for more. And you could sometimes find magazines in the library, but mostly you found novels. And so that's how I started reading the novels of Lawrence Block and the novels of Stanley Ellen. There were no novels of uh, Jack Ritchie, as far as I know, uh, but collections of short stories. And eventually, uh, as I got older, the more the older I got into deeper into teenage, the more cynical I got and the more I enjoyed dark rather than light <laughs> fiction. Uh, so originally, I loved traditional mysteries where the miscreant gets uh, caught at the end and uh, justice is restored. But eventually, I found it very interesting to read crime stories where there was no justice. You know, it was all about a heist. Mm -hmm gone wrong and all the participants kill each other. And that's the end. And that was great. I thought it's, it's wonderful that there's this book that's all about the dark side of life and it doesn't have to end happily. I found that fascinating. Eventually I found Raymond Chandler uh, with his bruised romanticism, beautiful lyrical prose. I found uh, James M. Cain, uh, very dark books. So Postman Always Rings Twice, Double Indemnity. Every reader of crime fiction should read those. They're very short. You can read them in a night apiece and they're fa fabulous. 
and Cornell Woolrich, who wrote very dark uh, stuff. And I fell in love with that. And so at some point, that began to dominate my reading. I also read science fiction. I read other novels and so on. But I, I really fell in love with that. Uh, and then at some point, uh, there are skips in my chronology here, but at some point, uh, I started reading a series of crime novels that my dad collected. Uh, he collected only one series. He was not a big reader. My mom read 10 books a night, mostly romance novels. Uh, my dad read almost nothing, but he did read the Michael Shane detective novels by Brett Halliday. And there were probably 50 or 60 of those. And they had beautiful painted Robert McGinnis covers, or in some cases, Robert McGuire or Barry Phillips, but it was always these, and they were 25 cent books and this skinny. And uh, my dad had a shelf of 30 or 40 of them. And I would just grab them. And I felt naughty because I looked at the cover and they were <laughs> half dressed. And I, I thought this has to be something good. And uh, the pages would practically crack as I opened the books. I had to learn how to read very carefully. And I fell in love with them. And so that's what I had in mind when Max and I went out drinking. And I said, boy, those were great old books. Why can't I go to a bookstore now and find books like that? And fortunately, Max had the same childhood and the same experience. Um, and he said, yeah, why, why, why are there no books like that? And, and now, now once again, there are now the irony is when we were new 20 years ago, every newspaper, every magazine wrote about us. We were the cool new kids on the blog. Now we've been around long enough that nobody, nobody writes about us any, which is fine. It's appropriate. <laughs> There's, there are other new kids on the block and they should get coverage. But, uh, at, at this point, it's a little bit more like, oh, those guys are still here. Those guys are still around. They haven't stopped yet. <laughs> And at some point, we probably will, but for now, we're still around. And uh, so at some point, there's going to be a kid who finds our books on his dad's shelf and mm -hmm. thinks they're naughty and sneaks them under the covers. And I love that idea. I love the idea that some some 15-year-old now is going to eventually be 35 and start a new hard case crime to revive hard case crime. And it'll be, you know, it'll, I'll be dead or, or close to dead or <laughs> might as well be dead. But um it won't ever go away. There, there's, there's always an appetite for good storytelling. And this is a, it's only one type of good storytelling. I'm not saying everyone on earth has to enjoy this particular type, but it's a type I love. And I know plenty of other people who do too. So I, I'm just thrilled to be, to play a part in bringing it back. You know, it's a karmic cycle. Uh, I'm only one tiny uh, twist of the wheel, but I'm proud to be that little twist. Oh, and, and I now that's I, that's such a lovely way to look at it. I think that's and I, I hadn't even considered that, but it's it is this kind of beautiful tradition, uh, and this this type of story, and and I think with all genre, there is a uh, there can be a barrier to entry for people, and there's something so wonderful when you can kind of talk someone into being like, no, read one of the Parker novels, and you'll see right. what I mean, it, because those are the most readable books. They're they're literary, but they're approachable. They're it's dark. Uh, you know, he's just a guy who wants to be a professional and and is in and you can just get on his side, even though he does terrible things. You're you're so locked into his point of view, you understand everything he's doing. And by the end of it, you've gone through this, you know, you you've read a great 200 pages and you're you're right. I'm I I've never been unsatisfied finishing a Parker novel. I've never been unsatisfied with any Donald Westlake novel, to be honest with you. I think he's you know, a, a, a great writer is a great writer, and then that and what they choose to write in, you know, some of his stuff. I, I finished the Hot Rock recently, and I think that's uh -huh. one of the most clever books I've ever I've ever read. And it's so and there's something so beautiful about that, and you hope that tradition exactly continues on to the next. The the 15 year old today will will start finding those books and start picking them up, and it's yeah, totally and, agree. and it's lovely you played a part in that. 
Yeah. I, I like to think that we we help keep it alive. You know, I'm glad we started Hard Case Crime when we did, uh, because in 2001 through 2003, when we were starting to approach the authors and try to get permission to reprint their old books, uh, we also did, we've published new books, of course, but reaching out to old writers, uh, they were still around. So Don Westlake was alive and I could talk to him and we could discuss which of his books we wanted to bring back and what to put on the cover and uh, should we make any changes? You know, all these conversations about uh, should people edit Roald Dahl and, and Ian Fleming uh, and Agatha Christie to take things out uh, after the authors are dead? That's a terrible, terribly hard question to answer. Um, I mean, the answer is probably no, but it's not a hard question to answer at all if the author's alive. If the author's there and I can call him up on the phone or send him an email and say, hey, you wrote this book in 1953 and there's this weird thing in there. It's not, never mind offensive. I remember one Westlake novel where... Um, there was a character and it said something like the man pulled out his turnip. I said, what, <laughs> what is that? So I, I emailed Don and I said, he pulled out his turnip. What, what, what is that? And he said, Oh, you know, back in the day we called pocket watches turnips. A pocket watch was wow. sort of shaped like a turnip and you called it a turnip. I, said, I never heard that in my life. I, I, first of all, I love knowing that. Second of all, yes, yes, you can leave it alone, but be aware that all the readers today are going to say, what the hell is a turnip? Or why is this guy carrying a turnip? And uh, would you like to change? And he said, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't make any sense to confuse the reader. Let's just say pocket watch. And that's the end of that. So that's an example of going back into an old book and changing something, but it's the author doing it. And it's the author's, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. And I got to know Don well enough that when sadly he, he passed away, he left behind several manuscripts that had never been published. And I worked with his widow and his best friend, Lawrence Block, to locate these manuscripts. Also, in one case, Max Allen Collins had a copy of one of Don's manuscripts sitting in a box in his basement because Don sent it to him years earlier. And uh, because I had worked with Don and had asked him these questions, you know, should we leave this or change it? And he said, well, this we should leave, but that we should change. So I had a sense of what he would say yes to and no to. So when I had these unpublished manuscripts, which needed some editing because they had never been published, I could hear his voice in my head saying, yeah, 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 that, that leave alone. Don't touch that. Uh, but yeah, sure. If this is confusing, of course, we want to not confuse people. Um, and if we had started Hard Case Crime five years later, we, we wouldn't have had that opportunity to, to talk to and work with some of these people. Evan Hunter, who's, who wrote under Ed McBain, uh, was still alive. We couldn't talk to him because he had uh, throat cancer, and so he, he had lost his voice, but he could email. Uh, Michael Crichton worked with us on two of his old pulp novels that he had never allowed to be reprinted under his name. And he said that to us. He said, I'll let you reprint them because I love your covers. I want to see my work with your covers. Mm -hmm. But you can't use my name. You have to publish it under my fake name, John Lang, and can't say a word to anyone that it's me. And I said, but you, you do know that if we publish it as John Lang, we'll sell 5,000 copies. If we publish it as Michael Crichton, we'll sell 50,000 or 500,000. <laughs> I don't care. So we just published it as John Lang. Then after he died, uh, young, he was, he was not the earlier generation. Yeah. He was quite young, uh, but had cancer. And uh, after he died, five years later, his widow, Sherry, called me up and said, you know, it's been five years. I'd like Michael to get credit for those books. Uh, can we put out all eight of those old pulp novels with his name on the cover? writing as John Lang. And I said, sure, of course, no problem. And I don't think Michael would have minded uh, once he was gone. And, uh, but initially I got to work with him on those. And th so that was, again, modifying old books. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, we published one called Grave Descend, which was terrific, really good book. It got nominated for the Edgar back in the day. And uh, when we were choosing the second one, he said, you know, I've been thinking 
is it confusing for readers? They, they're reading through a book and it says, I'm going to go buy a car for $1,000. Is that confusing to people? Should I update the prices? I said, but if you start there, where does it stop? <laughs> change the prices, but you don't change anything else. That's really weird. Do you change what song is playing on the radio, right? Do you change what people are wearing? Do you change the length of their sideburns, right? And uh, he said, yeah, okay, I, I get that. Uh, but what he decided to do without telling anybody, uh, and we didn't tell anybody, was for the second book, which was called Zero Cool, which was set entirely in the 1960s when he wrote it, he wrote a new opening chapter set in the present day and a new closing chapter to bookend the old story. In the opening and closing chapters, the main character of the book, who's a young man in the story, is a grandfather. And he's talking to his grandson and the grandson's interviewing him for a school project. Hey, grandpa, tell me about that time in the summer that you had that adventure. And he's holding a video recorder. But we didn't change the copyright date on the copyright page. And so people would write to us saying, this author was so prescient. In 1960, whatever, <laughs> he envisioned handheld video cameras. That's amazing. Oh, no. Anyway, so again, we wouldn't have gotten to work with Michael Crichton uh, or even the second generation. So, for instance, David Dodge, who I mentioned earlier, uh, had died, but his daughter, Kendall Dodge Butler, was still alive, but only for a few years. And so we got to work with Dodge's daughter and ask questions about her dad. And if I started Hard Case Crime today, that would, wouldn't be a possibility. Uh, we worked and have worked for 20 years with Robert McGinnis, the great uh, book cover and movie poster painter, who's now 97 years old. And he's finally slowing down. He was painting as recently as last year. And maybe he'll still paint. We'll see. But at 97, you can't expect that much in terms of fresh output. Um, but we got to work with him when he was 77. And as a result, there are two dozen new Robert McGinnis covers that didn't exist before. And it's a kind of benediction from the last generation to the current generation, working with Mickey Spillane before he died. These are some examples. So I'm very grateful that we started it when we did rather than later, because we would have missed an opportunity. That's, that's, uh, that's phenomenal. I, you know, that's such a great, I mean, because in so many ways, it's, it sounds like, uh, you know, you got to meet your, not only did you get to meet your heroes, you got to work with your heroes. And, that, and that's and it. Yeah. That. So, know, even just yeah, saying hello yeah. would have been plenty, you know, uh, it would have been a thrill to meet these people and say, your books meant a lot to me. I read them all growing up. I love them. And I did get to say that. Uh, and, you know, they didn't all say yes to working with us. Um, there were one or two who said, I don't like my earlier work. I don't want to see it reprinted. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I respect that. Uh, even though I think they're wrong. You know, I wouldn't have asked if I didn't like yeah, right, it. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, there's, there's an author named Alan First. You probably know him for his very sober, serious um, World War II spy novels. So he writes oh, yeah. European spy fiction, sort of in the John le Carré mode. Wonderful writer. Uh, when he started, he wrote three novels that were comic adventure uh, crime novels, uh, sort of in, the, in, a, in a kind of Elmore Leonard vein about a pot dealer. Mm. And the first one was nominated for the Edgar for Best First Novel, or Best Paperback, I forget which. And it's wonderful. It's called um, Your Turn in the Barrel. And it's hilarious. It's wonderful. And I contacted first and I said, could we please reprint it? And he said, no, absolutely not. Because my current readers, that's not what they expect from me. They don't expect comic pot dealer from me. They expect serious, <laughs> sober, Graham Greene, Philip Carr style, John le Carre style uh, spy fiction. I mean, he didn't go into that much detail, but it was clear that that was the kind of thing he had in mind. Uh, so he hasn't allowed us to reprint it. It's a wonderful book. I wish we could bring it back, but 
He has said no. Um, no. People said yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds that sounds fascinating. Well, that that's something I was really interested in when I look. You know, you again, you have all these people who are really known for their crime writing, but then you have people like uh, Ray Bradbury, who I I was like, I had no idea that he'd even written crime fiction, and and that's such an interesting. So I guess, I guess one thing I was kind of wondering is what what is sort of the ethos of hard crime? Like, what is it that you're looking for specifically to publish? I used to tell people half joking that a hard case crime novel is one in which there's a dead body on page one, a man on the run by page two, and a sex scene by page three. Uh, that's not literally true. And we have a few books in the line that have a kind of slow burn where the first hundred pages are building up, building up, building up, building up, and then there's a dead body on page hundred. It, it happens sometimes, but you have to be really good to do that for us because our readers don't have the patience to wait till page hundred to see the first dead body as a general matter. So we get right into the story at the start. The story is typically written with a minimum of, um, of, of unnecessary matter. It's often mm. about a single character and you're deep in the consciousness, deep in the head of a single character, or at most two or three, it takes place over a short period of time. So this is the un- Michener. Uh, there was an author named Michener who was always writing these generational sagas about uh, 40 years in the life of a family that uh, came and founded something in colonial America. And then by 1983, they were doing something else. Uh, that's the opposite of what we do. That's not to say it's bad. In fact, Michener was my brother's favorite author growing up, but that's the opposite. So John Jakes with his sagas of, of, of uh, or Gore Vidal with his sagas. And I mentioned Gore Vidal because we have a book by Gore Vidal, but he wrote mm-hmm. it early in his career quickly for money and um, under a fake name. And it covers about three days of time during the revolution in Egypt in the 50s. And it's it's a crackling adventure story and crime story about smuggling and murder and so on. Sort of Casablanca-ish. It's called Thieves mm-hmm. Fallout. Anyway, um, our books tend to be tight, sort of laser focused on a small set of events, small set of people. And uh, they grab you by the collar right on page one and they drag you bodily through the story until they deposit you um, spent and hyperventilating on page 224 or so. And that's it. And that's that's the, the, the curtain comes down, page 224, 240, 256. At that point, the book's over. We don't generally, there are exceptions, we don't generally go for uh, giant sagas. Uh, we have a few books that are over a hundred thousand words, but most of ours are like 60,000. That's a typical length for us. That, yeah, it makes sense. And that's sort of the perfect, I mean, that's just perfect. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's read, like yeah. you said, one evening in change, maybe. And, and yeah, maybe and it's you're two, just... depending on how fast you read, you know, it's, we're, we're the potato chips of literature. You know, we want you to pick up another one, another one, another one, gobble them down. Uh, we're not necessarily haute cuisine. Oh, I'll change that. <laughs> we are not haute cuisine, but we are yummy. And you know, I, I think there's there's a time for haute cuisine and there's a time for popcorn. And at the movie theater, what you want is popcorn. And you know, I think the old paperbacks, when you used to be able to buy a paperback for a quarter, a movie ticket was a quarter. And so our goal was to offer an entertainment alternative to a night at the movies. Today, of course, a movie ticket is, you know, $10 or $15. And frankly, so is a paperback book. Uh, So things have sort of kept pace. This is, do I want to go out to the theater or movie theater and and watch George Clooney uh, spark with uh, Julia Roberts? Or do I want to stay home, uh, you know, 
kick my uh, shoes off and read about a heist, read about a detective, read about some uh, some some other misbegotten deeds, uh, an armored car robbery or whatever it is. And if if you're in the mood for for the book version of that instead of the movie version of that, Hard Case Crime will give it to you. Absolutely. And, and I, I think uh, you, you kind of say, right, it's potato chips, it's popcorn. It's like, but, you know, it can be really hard to make a good potato chip. It, it can, can be really I've never hard. I've done it in my life. I've tried. I <laughs> cannot right. make it. They yes. all burn. Or they're, they're too thick and then they puff up and yes. you're like, that's not crunchy. I want a crunchy potato chip. And so there's a real, there's so much skill involved in, and again, making people just get to that, turn the page. It's so simple. Just turn the page. And it's like, the language and the writing and all these books is so propulsive that I, I you know, you don't want to put them down. You can't put them down. And, and I think that's a skill that uh, is, you know, is so valuable is so it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a high degree of difficulty for, I think people think people can think of as disposable. That's right. I, I agree with you. I think people look at it and because it is so transparent, uh, the authorial voice is not standing between you and the story. It just sort of disappears. It appears simple. Uh, it's like Stephen King's books, you, within a page or two, you start reading a Stephen King book, within a page or two, you care about the characters, you want to see what happens to them, you're interested. And even as a writer, I look at that and I say, how does he do that? Because he doesn't have many words. So if you're talking about one page or two pages, how does he engage your sympathies? How does he engage your interest in just two pages? That might be, what is it, 60 lines of text, maybe five words per line, maybe 10 words per line, depending on the type size not many words. So what does he do that other writers don't do? Because it looks simple, but it's really, really hard. And he's really good at it. Uh, and you know, his son, by the way, just apropos of nothing, Joe Hill, he has uh, more than one son who's a writer. Owen King has also been writing novels, which are wonderful. Uh, Joe Hill is his other son who is writing novels. And I think Joe has a voice very similar to his dad's. And again, it's one of those things where within one page, you deeply care about the characters. And I look at it and I say, how did he do that? And I can't dissect it. You know, it's like dissecting a frog. It's the art is art. Right. <laughs> try to learn from it. Right. Exactly. You, 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 uh, the, you dissect the swan, you lose the song kind of thing. It's right. this sort of thing. It's exactly, if you go too deep into it, but uh, so when, so you meant you yourself are a writer. Uh, so, so when did you decide to, to kind of go over from reader to writer and, and what was that process like for you? Well, uh, I started writing nonfiction for magazines in my teen years because that was the first video game boom. Uh, this was before Gamergate existed, so there was no notion of ethics in video game journalism. There was just video game journalism, and nobody would have used the word journalism to describe it. Uh, and no magazine, I wanted to be a writer. I love to read. I love putting words together. And the question was, what magazine would consider publishing a 13-year-old writer? Well, the New Yorker wasn't going to, the Atlantic wasn't going to, <laughs> uh, but maybe a magazine whose title was Electronic Fun with Computers and Games, they might, <laughs> and they did. And so I started writing reviews for $50 a pop, and uh, I would write video game reviews for Atari games, ColecoVision games, things you are too young to remember. And eventually I, I was, I got brave enough. I mean, I'd been reading mysteries all this time, but I was, I was not brave enough to try writing one, but eventually I tried, I came up with a story idea and I sent it to Ellery Queen and uh, because they had a section called department of first stories. 
And actually quite a few famous writers began in their Department of First Stories. So Stanley Ellen, who I mentioned, was a Department of First Stories author. Harry Kemmelman, who wrote a series of books like Monday the Rabbi Did This, Tuesday the Rabbi Did That, all the rabbi mysteries. He was a Department of First Stories writer. I forget who else. But um, oh, I, I think I do know one, another one that is very uh, Levinson and Link, I believe. Oh, I think you may be right. I think that that uh, uh, of Colombo, yeah, Colombo and Murder She Wrote, and they, yep. that's how they got their start as well. I so it's right. something that, yeah. yeah. And and there are others too that I'm I'm forgetting for sure. Um, but I sent a story to them, and now looking back on it, it was far from the best thing I ever wrote. Uh, but the editor Eleanor Sullivan was uh, was kind enough to take it under her wing, and she quite heavily edited it, every line she edited, uh, but she took the trouble to do that and she made it better. She fixed the things that I did badly and she published it. And that was my first published story. And then I wrote two more for Ellery Queen. I started writing some for Hitchcock, the, the sister magazine, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery mm-hmm. Magazine. And I must've written a dozen or two dozen stories for, for them and for various anthologies, but I never braved a novel. I started one, which became Little Girl Lost years later. I started, but I only wrote the first three pages. And then I set it aside because I didn't feel confident that I could write a novel. And when Max and I said, let's create Hard Case Crime, we will each write a book for it because that was a good way to get cheap books. You know, We couldn't afford <laughs> large amounts of money. So he wrote one for a dollar. I wrote one for a dollar. And uh, eventually we got royalties, but up front a dollar. And uh, he wrote a book called Fade to Blonde, which won the Seamus Award for its year. And I wrote one called uh, Little Girl Lost under a fake name. I, I, I was not bold enough to put my real name on it. Uh, but that was my first attempt to write long fiction. And so I, I took those three pages I had written 10 years earlier and I said, I'm going to finish this. And then I sat down and over the course of two or three months, I, I finished writing it. And I'm still pretty happy with it. You know, I look back at that book and unlike my first story for Queen, which was not very good, if I'm being completely honest, uh, the first novel, while it is a first novel and has some of the flaws of a first novel, it's not bad, you know, objectively, I can't be objective, but as objective as I can be, <laughs> I look at it and I say, it's not the best first novel ever, but it's pretty good. And so I'm, I'm happy it's still out there, still in print. Uh, and the sequel was better. Songs of Innocence, the second book about John Blake, uh, was, was, in my opinion, stronger, although I know there are people who like the first one better. So who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, and, and uh, I was going to say, so now most recently, or I see very recently, you wrote the novelization for The New Guys. The nice so guys. What, the nice guys. Yes. Oh, the nice guys. The nice guys. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah, the nice guys. No, I, I love that movie. Now I feel like I'm so <laughs> silly. I love that. I love it so much. I like want six more of them, and I can't remember the name. But wouldn't that be no, great? So how? Yeah. yeah. Uh, please. Yeah. So yeah, why did so, that happen? So, uh, Shane Black is the writer and director of the Nice Guys. Uh, also, before that, a really wonderful uh, comedic crime movie called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Both of them are excellent. If you haven't seen that one, you should go see that one. So the nice guys, I had, I got to know Shane a little bit because he is also a big fan of books like this and specifically a big fan of Brett Halliday and the Michael Shane, uh, no relation, spelled differently, Michael Shane detective novels, which my dad collected. He loves them. Shane Black loves them. And he wanted to get in touch with the estate of Brett Halliday because he wanted to use some plot elements from the Michael Shane books in his movies. So Kiss Kiss Bang Bang had a plot that was partly based on either one or two Michael Shane novels. It wasn't an adaptation. It wasn't that Michael Shane, the character doesn't turn up in it, just a plot gimmick. Now in practice, he could probably have reused the same plot gimmick without approaching the estate. It's plot gimmicks are a dime a dozen. Good ones are 
less common, but you know, as a writer, you own the words you write, but not the ideas. It's not like anyone owns a trademark on the concept of a hard-boiled detective. And even a twist, like Agatha Christie's big twist in, in And Then There Were None, that's been used a hundred times by a hundred TV shows. And even the the premise, you know, people on an isolated island and the phones are cut off and one of them's a killer, mm-hmm. one by one people get killed. Yes, she created that, but you don't have to pay the Agatha Christie estate if you want to use it. It's just a plot. Um, but he wanted to do the right thing. And he went, he, so he got in touch with us. I can't remember if it was before or after that movie, but anyway, he got in touch with us uh, about Brett Halliday. And we were about to publish a Halliday book called Murder is My Business. And I asked him if he would provide a blurb and because that worked out so well with Stephen King. And uh, he came back with something like 10 blurbs. He said, take take any of these. And I thought, well, I'll take them all. And I, I stitched them together and I made it an introduction. So it's like Murder is My Business with an introduction by, by Shane Black. It was lucky that they all worked as sentences that could be stitched together. Um, so anyway, we got to know each other a tiny bit that way. And when he did The Nice Guys, he uh, had the idea that it would be fun to have a novelization, I think in part because back in the 70s, the period the movie is set in, a lot of movies had novelizations. Today, there are much, far fewer. Uh, and if there are any now, it's going to be typically for a superhero movie or science fiction or something like that. But back then, you would have novelizations for crime movies, for dramas, you know. Uh, so the idea of having a novelization for The Nice Guys felt like it fit with the period of the movie. And I think he also saw that there were some modern day novelizations or there was a series of novels based on the Castle TV series. And he liked oh, the idea cool. of there being a uh, a Nice Guys novel or maybe even a whole series of Nice Guy novels. In the end, the movie didn't do well, which is really a shame because it was a very funny, good movie. Uh, but it came out opposite uh, Captain America Civil War and the Angry Birds movie. And I think those two sucked all the oxygen out of the movie theaters. Uh, so we never did any others. And he never did any more Nice Guys movies. But uh, he came to us and said, uh, do you know of a writer that might be willing to write this? And I said, know of one. I am one. And I raised my <laughs> hand. I, without being asked to do it, I wrote up a chapter or two, uh, a sample to show what it would be like. And he must have liked it enough and said, yeah, sure, go ahead, you do it. And uh, he then sent me all his notes and shooting scripts and an early cut of the movie without any of the effects in it yet. And I had only 27 days, I think, to write it. And I wrote it in 27 days. It was, uh, it's of course much easier to write a book when somebody else gives you the whole story. You know, the whole plot is there. And in fact, most of the dialogue uh, but all the other words I had to come up with. And he was very nice and said, feel free to, to color outside the lines. You know, you don't feel you have to be constrained by what we do in the movie. You can make stuff up. You can go darker if you want. And so I made up stuff about Russell Crowe's childhood, uh, having broken the law and sent to an avocado farm, like a penal colony. I don't even remember what it was, but I thought that's funny. I'll do that. And he was very kind and let me get away with it. The only thing I couldn't get away with and it wasn't because of him. It was because of the lawyers at Warner Brothers who put the movie out. Mm. I think it was Warner Brothers. I had a scene toward the end where there was an orgy. Uh, that's in the movie. I didn't make that up. There was a party and uh, one of the characters burst into a bathroom and, and there's a guy who uh, I forget. I think it was Don Rickles. I said there was a guy who looked like Don Rickles and he was uh, I won't go into detail, but he was he was performing a sex act on a starlet. And uh, they got very nervous. And I said, I didn't say Don Rickles was doing it. <laughs> I said someone who looked like Don Rickles was doing it. And they said, no, no, take it out. Take it out. And so 
it was a perfectly that legal was... sex act. It wasn't something unspeakable, but they didn't want uh, Don Rickles. Don Rickles could get mad at you. And if Don Rickles got mad at you, he was, but was he, wasn't he already dead? I can't remember. Anyway, we didn't, we didn't. <laughs> Don Rickles joke. That's a, did, it, did it become like a, a well-known insult comic? Uh, someone who looks that resembles. <laughs> no, no. I, I think I kept the, right. I kept something, but I just said there was, there was a guy by the sink. You know, I, I just made something up. I don't know. <laughs> But um, it was fun to do that. It, it felt like a real noir experience because I woke up every morning at two in the morning to do my typing because I had stuff to do all day long. I had books to edit and things to do. Uh, so if I had, if I wanted to have time just to write, I had to do it before everyone else was awake. So I woke up two two thirty. Uh, I don't smoke. I don't really drink. So I didn't have those accoutrements. But I and I didn't have a manual typewriter to work on. I did actually, but I didn't use it. But I sat at the keyboard while the night was still there and the dawn hadn't broken yet. And I typed as fast as I could. And it felt like the old time paperback writers. And it was what a terrific experience, terrific chance. I sent Shane a note the other day. Uh, maybe it was a couple of months ago now, but I said, uh, what about doing another nice guys novel? And he said, do you have the right to do that? Um, I said, no, no. But you know, if you and I both want to do it, surely we could talk Warner brothers into saying yes. Uh, we'll see if that happens. I'm I'm guessing that uh, getting anything out of Warner Brothers is not the easiest thing in the world, but uh, it'd be fun. I'd like to I'd like to see what the nice guys were doing in the '80s. You know, we saw them in the '70s, so age them ten years. Now it's the '80s. You know, Iran Contra is going on, Ab Scam, Oliver North, and they can get involved in some of that nonsense. It'd be fun. Yes, that I, I'm rooting for that harder <laughs> than you'll ever know. That's uh, I would yes. I, and it's one of those, it's one of those, it's lingered in the sort of, I think, uh, consciousness of a lot of the, the, certainly the people who've seen it, because it's so set up to be, you know, you want to see more of their adventures. And I feel like every six months, you know, someone asks Russell Crowe or Ryan Gosling, are we going to get another one of those? And they well, go, yes, we want to do it, show. they just won't let us. Yeah, I think it should oh, be a TV really? show. I think they should do it for streaming. Uh, there was a version. So I think it started as a feature. Then they did a new version, a version that was like a one hour pilot for a, uh, a script, one hour pilot script for, for TV. And then it became a feature. Uh, I think it would be very easy to bring these characters back for a, a for a streaming series, eight episodes, something like that. The only problem is it's period, which means it's expensive to shoot because mm. you have to have period cars, period costumes. You have to redress all the sets so that they're period sets. That's okay if it's a set, but if it's an outdoor scene, you have to make sure it doesn't look like 2023. And uh, that that's a pain in the butt. And I, I can understand if people don't want to do that, but I guess you could do what they do for all these Star Wars shows, right? You shoot against a giant green screen and you just fill stuff in with CGI. But I guess in some ways, Star Wars ought to look like CGI. I mean, really what was great about Star Wars, the original movie was that it didn't look like CGI. It predated CGI and everything was tactile and felt grungy and grimy. Uh, but now it looks like CGI and people are tolerant of that. But if you do CGI 1970s or 80s, it would look really weird. I mean, it might be funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think your there, eye would there catch is... those errors. Exactly right. I said there's always a little uncanny valley to like, or if they ever like CGI a dog, I, I've always heard it's like that idea of like, you can CGI a tiger because people don't see tigers every yes. day. Yeah, right. But if once you start CGIing, uh, CGIing a dog, which I have sitting right next to me, I go like, that doesn't really look like the dog that's sitting right next to me. Except, but, but that's... have you seen the trailer for the new Indiana Jones movie? They've CGI'd no, uh, Harrison Ford and it looks great. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but yeah, they had a lot yeah. of footage of the real Harrison good. Ford. That's the difference, you know. 
And uh, I'll say the one thing with those, and I, I noticed this uh, again, you mentioned in like a Captain America or even like the Irishman where they did that. Yeah, another right. great crime film. It's like uh, they can't CGI the, the walk. Uh, that's true. They still walk like they're 80, you know? <laughs> so that's, that's uh, absolutely but true. The, but the faces, I mean, yeah, the, the new, that, that I, it's getting I, better. You know, I, I remember they, they did CGI Robert Downey in one of those. Maybe that's the one they CGI to young mm. Robert Downey and it was fun and cool, but it looked just a little bit off and, uh, but it's getting better. And so I'm hopeful yeah. that by June, when, when Indiana Jones comes out, I'm a sucker. I was gung ho for the fourth Indiana Jones movie. It was terrible. But I still went on opening night and I was still excited until I saw it. And I'm going to stay excited about the new one until I see it. Uh, once the score kicks in, there's nothing you can do to keep me away from the theater, unfortunately. That's right. You it's can always close your I'll eyes and enjoy John yeah. Williams. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, so, you know, and you say a TV series. I don't, have you watched uh, Poker Face by any chance? I have not, although uh, I love the Knives Out movies and I think highly of Ryan Johnson. I heard somewhere once that he was a fan of our books, although I've had no contact with him, so I have no idea if it's true. Uh, we were pitched the idea of doing a Knives Out novelization, uh, and I wish we had done it. I read the script, and it was a wonderful script. And uh, the problem was it was too close. The, by the time the studio got in touch with us, it was like 14 days to write the book. Mm -hmm. I, I can write fast, but even I can't write a book in 14 days. There are people who can, you know, Lawrence Block famously wrote books in a, in a week, but um, my, my fingers don't go that fast. So I, I, we had to pass on it. And it's not quite hard case crime. It's a little, it's more Agatha Christie, but I wish we had done that one. That, that would have been great. But yeah, oh, Poker so Fates have heard I, wonderful I, things about. I, yeah, I would... Oh, I'd read, I'd read all those as books. I'd read all those as hard case crimes. So if That's there's great. any, but there, and uh, Natasha, I mean, yeah, she's just phenomenal. And, and I'm a Columbo sucker. That's why I know Levinson and Link uh, so well. I, I've watched them all over quarantine about uh, 20 times. And uh, <laughs> oh, they're, so, they're just so satisfying. Uh, but uh, I remember that, the Columbos just... from my childhood. I remember uh, Murder, She Wrote. I remember lying on the uh, living room floor in my parents' apartment when I was a kid, watching the premiere, the opening episode of Murder, She Wrote, and uh, guessing the solution because there was a reference to uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. And I had just read the Count of Monte Cristo. I said, that's not an accident. That's a clue. <laughs> and that means the killer will be so-and-so. And it turned out to be right. And I felt really proud of myself. I didn't guess the solution to any other, but that, that one, I was so proud of myself. Um, now oh, those are, knows I, Murder, She Wrote is going to go back and check me on that. And I hope I'm right, because I hope it's not like a faulty fake memory that was implanted in my brain. But I seem to remember that the premiere episode of Murder, She Wrote had a Count of Monte Cristo connection. We'll see. I'll have uh, to check. I, I will. Uh, I'm, I can confirm that for you. Because <laughs> uh, my, my, my partner, my girlfriend and I have been going back and watching all those as well, because we've done all the Columbo. So now we're on to Murder, She Wrote. Gotta do Murder, She Wrote. Exactly. And they're phenomenal. They're so great as well. Uh, yeah. You know, that's <laughs> have you. Are there no Jessica, Jessica Fletcher uh, manuscripts floating around for you guys? Oh, that's interesting. You know, there were there was a series of uh, Jessica fake. Fake. There was a series of Murder, She Wrote novels written by Jessica Fletcher and somebody. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was a man, I think, maybe named Donald. I can't remember his, who it was. Uh, so there, they did do a series of Jessica Fletcher novels. Um, and I think Castle also was because the main character was supposed to be a mystery writer. That's why they did a series of novels. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I never watched Castle. I probably should. Uh, I'd like to do, from time to time, we've talked to friends in Hollywood about doing a hard case crime series, but it would be much more likely to be uh, an anthology show, which go in and out of popularity. It's generally right. hard to get an anthology show off the ground. 
because people want to come back each week and see the same character. But Poker Face is, in fact, basically an anthology show. It has one character who recurs, but everyone else is new. Uh, like Columbo, similarly, every character was new. Uh, and mostly that was true of Murder, She Wrote, although there was the sheriff and a few other little characters. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I'd love to do a hard case crime TV series, but somehow we haven't we haven't cracked that nut yet. We do, did do a series based on the Colorado Kid. It ran for six years on sci-fi. It was more supernatural, more sort of traditional Stephen King. Uh, but I, I got to work on that, and that which was great. It was a lot of fun writing uh, TV. Uh, but a hard case crime series, although I've been trying on and off for years, it's never quite, uh, so far, has never gotten off the ground. Maybe we'll come up with a way. Maybe we'll finally figure something out. There, there's, there's something there for sure. There's Absolutely. Something. I, uh, I, uh, boy, again, it, 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 just so I can watch it, please. Uh, there you go. Exactly. Even if it's just for the two of us, we'll, we'll do it. Maybe it'll have to be a radio drama. You know, right? You know what? What is a podcast but a radio what drama? A podcast, by another name? But yeah. you're absolutely right. You know, and though, and some of those are great. Some of those are uh, there. Yep. There's a few of those out there that and do it in the crime style. Do it in you know, the, like thrilling adventure hour does. Yeah, sometimes they have their foley sounds. You know, the footsteps and so on. I when I was a Absolutely. kid, I listened. There was a thing called Mystery Theater with E. G. Marshall. This was the tail end of of uh, radio drama, but it was some AM channel in New York anyway. And uh, I would plug in my earpiece and have my little handheld AM radio and listen to him say, "This." is mystery theater and i would fall in love with these stories so you you don't need to see things necessarily to get a good story you can the words themselves can be enough absolutely oh no and uh well i was gonna you know just uh so i guess we'll we'll close with this because it's one of the most recent ones i've read okay. uh was and it just sparked to me because i was thinking of thrilling adventure hour which has their version of a nick and nora charles right uh so are, are you a are you a thin man fan? i am you a like thin man fan as well yeah, in fact, I think I heard somewhere, I hope I'm not spilling any confidential beans, that there's a new uh, film or TV version of uh, Nick and Nora that is in development. Who knows if it'll ever get to the screen, but I have heard that they're working on it. I, I do love The Thin Man, and I love that sort of back and forth badinage. I love the sort of uh. crisp cocktail party chatter and so on. You will meet a Nick and Nora-inspired pair if you read the very last Donald Westlake novel we published, uh, which was the last posthumous work of his, and it's not a crime novel. And we published it anyway, because I fell in love with it and I said, the hell with it, I'm gonna publish it anyway. It's called Call Me a Cab. It's the story of a cab driver in New York City who is hailed by a woman outside Bloomingdale's and he says, where to? And she says, Los Angeles. And the rest of the book, it's not exactly that, she says, JFK airport. But then on the way to the airport, she says, you know what, how much would it cost to drive me to Los Angeles? My boyfriend is in Los Angeles. And I promised him I'd give him an answer to his marriage proposal when I got to Los Angeles. But I don't feel five hours is enough for me to make up my mind. I'd rather drive with you across the country. That gives me, what, seven, eight days to make up my mind. What do you say? And he says, sure, what the heck? It's you know like $3,000. And she pays him the money and they go driving. And the entire book is driving across the country, this New York City taxi cab going through you know, Ohio and Utah and wherever. Eventually it lands in, in Nevada and then you get to Los Angeles. And the two of them, of course, fall in love along the way. And then the question is, will she say yes to this one or to that one? So it's a suspense novel. There's a lot of suspense in it. Who is she going to marry? Will she marry nobody? Uh, but no crime except for the speeding the cab does in one scene. That's it. No crime. So uh, in that book, the two characters, the woman and the driver, uh, meet this older couple that are sort of 
brisk and brittle and full of cocktail party conversation. And it's not supposed to be literally Nick and Nora, but it's very Nick and Nora. And it's some of the best stuff in the book. It's it's sort of sweet and bittersweet and heartbreaking and wonderful. So if you have any taste for that Nick and Nora thing, um, it's worth reading Call Me a Cab, even though it's not a crime novel, even though it's much more like a rom-com, it's just really good. And you'll find a fun Nick and Nora uh, homage in, in there. I'm trying to think if we've done other books in hard case crime that have that thing. Um, there must be, but it's not coming to mind, not off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, the original well, Thin Man is great. Oh, it's so good. And, and so I have to tell you, I guess, you know, a fitting place to to, to, to lay this episode to rest because I, Hard Case Crack, Call Me Cab is, uh, was the first book of yours. I, I was a slow night at uh, Skylight Books. Don't tell anyone. And, <laughs> and I picked up and I read the first two chapters and I was hooked completely. And I said, okay, I'll come back and, and put this on hold for myself later. And someone bought it, and I've yet to get it back. So <laughs> you, I will. Uh, you got to get it back. You got to get it back. I will finish that one because I. It, it was the thing that sparked all my interest in in your. I remember literally that night going and googling hard case crime and being like, "Look at all these great titles!" And and so and I love Westlake so much, and I and that's such a fun setup for uh, and and he tr he he really sets it up so well where he's like calling and I need to an authorized check and I need this and that. And it's just, it's, and then you buy it. You totally, you're bought in totally on this kind of crazy, it. beautiful premise. So uh, I'm so glad it. to hear we were nervous. We were really on the edge. Should we publish this book or not? It's a terrific book, but it's got no crime in it. And we're called hard case crime. And we <laughs> almost didn't publish it. And I'm so glad we did. Now I know that it's the gateway drug for at least one person and one very important person yes. who found us because of this weird non-crime novel we published. So there you go. I'm really happy to hear that. That makes me Makes me very touched. Uh, I, 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 again, I thank you for everything you do because these are stories that that need to be out there, and uh, they bring me so much joy. And I think they bring all of our customers so much joy. Whoever brings them home, I, no one's disappointed. They're, they're, they're. You know, like you say, they're two hundred pages. They're, they're cut diamonds. There's a dead body. You, you get in it. You get some crime. You get some fun. You get, you know, and then by the end, you know what happened, and it's, it's, it's always satisfying. So, I'm so, so thank you so much for everything well, thank you do. You for everything you do, because without booksellers going out and telling people about this weird little labor of love project, how in the world would they find it? We don't have the money to advertise in the New York Times Book Review or to put uh, billboards in Times Square. So it is the voice of someone like you. That's it. That it's, it's the word of mouth from our readers and word of mouth from booksellers that introduces us to people. So thank you for everything you're doing. I'm so grateful. I'm delighted to be here on the podcast. And uh, I hope anyone who hears it gives a try to one of our books. All right. Absolutely. Well, Thank you again for joining us and thank you to all the listeners. Uh, if there's, if you want to pick up anything from the hard case crime collection, we have a fair amount at the store. You can find us at 1818 Vermont Avenue. Uh, ask for Tyler and I will lead you right to the crime mystery section. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time.